Hello, it's your friendly neighborhood host, J.T. Wheatley, back again for another episode of the History of Comic Books podcast. This time, part three, the final chapter of the Battle for Marvel. When we last left off, Ron Perlman, the previous owner of Marvel Comics, had finally relinquished the ownership after filing for bankruptcy, with Carl Icahn seemingly taking over the company as he was its lead bondholder. However, Ike Perlman and A.V.A. Red, uh, owners of Toy Biz, had other plans, and uh, soon, the f- in this final sequence, they are going- we're going to see who finally ends up with control of Marvel Comics. Outside of the court proceedings, Stan Lee, the legendary former editor-in-chief of Marvel and architect of its survival during the Golden Age, stated he hoped Toy Biz would win control of Marvel, though he previously said he wanted for it to work out with Perlman and Bevelin as well. At the time, Lee was paid a million dollars a year, mostly as a figurehead for the company. However, he actually kept working, and even managed to get a Daredevil cartoon series and a Black Widow live-action show greenlit by two major networks, but when he went to Perlman and Bevins with the news, they shot it down, with Bevins worried they might bomb and hurt the Marvel brand. This kind of thinking frustrated Lee. After all, he didn't help revive Marvel in the 1960s by playing it safe. With the lack of emphasis on uh, movies and TV shows, however, that was something A.V.A. Ride planned to do. One thing he did give Carl Icahn was bringing in Joe Calamari on board, whom he had previously worked with back when they were when Cadence had bought Marvel in the 1960s. But between Pearlman and Icahn fighting over Marvel, Lee sided with Toy Biz, figuring they actually wanted to do what was best for Marvel. On June 25th, McKelvey approved a trustee settlement, with the lenders getting $617 million, while the stockholders would receive $12 million in warrants. Icahn tried to throw a wrench at the proceedings with more offers to the banks, but failed. One drain on Marvel that had to be addressed was their licensing deal with the Fleer Skybox for the NBA cards, which had reached $60 million in fees. Gibbons found the deal preposterous as it was based on upfront fees over a percentage of sales like most other licensing deals, thus leaving Fleer Skybox on, on the hook if the sales didn't pan out. This, these problems aside, the case would be confirmed as the banks and debt holders would receive $230 $2 million in cash, $13 million in Toy Biz Common Stock, 8% preferred stock, and money from upcoming litigation against Perlman. In addition, they also had the right to buy more preferred stock. Plus, the planned lawsuit by Marvel against Perlman went ahead for $900 million, the full face value of his subsidiaries over the now worthless Marvel bonds he originally issued. The lawsuit against Perlman was based on the belief he pocketed $280 million over his $22 million investment when that money should have gone back into Marvel. While unethical, it was ruled not to be illegal, and the, and the lawsuit fell through. It would be something Perlman would crow about for years, even if the rest of Wall Street howled in protest, though he would eventually settle with Marvel in 2005 for $80 million, nicely in the range of the 30 to $100 million projected by Gibbons. Larry Mittman, the lawyer for Perlman and Toybez, would claim that Icahn's lawyer tried an illegal side deal, while finally accepted a $3.5 million in legal fees along with a standard agreement to not sue Marvel for five years. Carl Icahn had spent $70 million to acquire Marvel through its bonds. While, I, while Icahn would receive the right to buy shares new company along with some preferred shares thanks to the $100 million in, in Marvel debt he acquired, the house of ideas had slipped through his fingers. It was firmly in Ike Permanent's and Toy Biz's now. The fourth amended merger plan was finally approved on Ju- July 31st, 1998, with Permanent having to borrow $200 million for payments from the Bank of Switzerland. While he had faith in Marvel, he wasn't about to put that much mo- of his own money up. On October 1st, 1998, Toy Biz merged with Marvel, formally 
renamed Marvel Enterprises Incorporated and listed as MVL on the New York Stock Exchange with opening share price of $7 a share. Ahern was forced to resign as CEO of Tobas due to its closeness to Terry Savage and Susan Aikens, the banker from Chase Manhattan. Eric Ellenbogen was chosen to be Marvel's director as the new CEO, as the bankruptcy gave him more power over Perimeter and A-Rod, but Ike liked him because he wasn't a big spender. While Marvel was solving again, the employees chased under uh, Perimeter's strict rules, including his drug testing. Ellen Bulbingen objected, stating Marvel needed youth to keep the company relevant. Ironically, a big issue came back in that now that Perimeter ran Marvel, he realized the company could make more money if they ended their royalty deal with Toy Biz, the thing they fought for this whole time. They were able to sell, sell Fleer and Skybox and Panini for $26 million, a $400 million loss from the original deal. However, thanks to some savvy tax lawyers, Marvel was able to write this off for years afterwards. The company also refocused on Hollywood, producing the successful Blade movie in uh, 1998, their first successful film, followed by uh, X-Men in 2000, and then the record-setting Spider-Man in 2002. Due to previously licensing deals, Marvel didn't make much profit from Blade and X-Men as they were paid upfront fees over the profit percentage. With A.V.A. Rudd now in charge, though, he pulled a better deal on Spider-Man, pocketing Marvel $80 million in licensing deals alone in 2001. As a result, A.V.A. Rudd was made Chief Creative Officer of Marvel Comics. In addition, he did take notice of the talented associate producer under Lauren Schuler Donner, the producer of the X-Men movie. A.R.I. was impressed at the level of detail he placed on the film, such as asking the makeup artist to try to, to style the actor playing Wolverine Hugh Jackman's hair to look like more in the comics, which they managed to do quite effectively without looking stupid. And it was that level of detail that made him second, that uh, A.V.A.R. decided to make this person second in command at Marvel Studios. That producer was Kevin Feige. Born on June 2, 1973, in Boston, Massachusetts, Kevin Feige came from a show business family with his maternal grandfather, Robert E. Short, having worked as a producer on the soap operas like Guiding Light and As the World Turns. Feige would graduate from the University of Southern California Cinematic Arts and tend working in movies. He eventually was hired as an assistant to executive producer Lauren Schuler Donner, working in such films as Volcano and You've Got Mail. When Donner had the opportunity to produce the X-Men in 2000, she promoted Feige to associate producer due to his extensive comic book knowledge. That, plus his experience actually making blockbuster movies, would soon prove very valuable to Marvel's future. Marvel still faced a few problems, like having to sell $250 million in junk bonds at 12% interest to cover debt payments. Plus, Ellen Bogan would be fired as CEO, though he would get a $2.5 million severance package on top of $3 million he had already earned. I could think of worse ways to be fired. Peter Cuneo was uh, made CEO of Marvel Comics, and while he saw movies and TV as the future, he insisted the comics be made more profitable as well. To revive the books, he hired Bill Jameis, a holdover from uh, Skybox, as the new president of Marvel. In a nice twist, he actually read Marvel Comics. Keeping with his trading card background, he sold Marvel, the Marvel license to Topps and then moved to revive the characters, launching the Ultimate line, which was a separate reboot of the Marvel Universe, along with having Marvel leave the CCA to launch its mature Max line. He also built Marvel's uh, presence online, providing exclusive content to his website while using it to promote the comics and the other media, specifically the upcoming movies. However, one public relations misstepped 
was when Stan Lee had his salary cut in half to $500,000 a year due to promoters' cost-cutting, which resulted in him leaving the company for a brief period of time before A.V.A. Rod and others prevailed on promoters to rehire Stan Lee at $800,000 a year for life. Thankfully, the Sony-produced Spider-Man movie ended up being a huge success with the release on May of 2002, and Marvel pocketed $10 million from the deal, quickly followed by other successful movies. However, the stock price was still low due to the interest payments on their debt at $30 million a year, and the bonds they issued were selling at $0.40 to $0.50 cents on the dollar. Permula instead saw this as an opportunity and uh, used it to help cancel out the debt, personally buying it himself, meaning he could cancel the bonds at half the price. By 2001, Marvel was profitable again by $100 million from buying back his own bonds. Ultimately, many of the banks sold their stock for cheap, losing hundreds of millions of dollars, but realizing that this was the case for many bankruptcies. However, Marvel was about to launch a new venture that would not only raise its value, but change entertainment forever. First, though, Marvel Comics and Ike Perlmutter ended ended up dropping the company that was used to acquire Marvel in the first place, Toy Biz. Realizing that Marvel was losing millions on a royalty-free deal with Toy Biz, they paid $13 to $16 million penalty to end it, and then turned around and sold the license to make Marvel Toys to Hasbro for $205 million in January of 2006. With no longer having an exclusive license, Toy Biz would become defunct by 2007. Marvel had bigger things in their minds, though. It's not just toys. They were about to get into the movie-making business. Realizing that while Marvel has sold licenses to X-Men, Spider-Man, and Fantastic Four to studios like 20th Century Fox and Sony, Kevin Feige knew that Marvel Comics still held the rights to core characters like the Avengers, Iron Man, Captain America, and Thor, and envisioned a plan to create a shared universe in the movies like in the comic books. However, instead of selling these licenses to movie studios, why doesn't Marvel just produce the films themselves? The plan was very ambitious and risky, and to do so, David Maisel was hired as the chief operating officer of Marvel Studios in 2004, securing a loan from Merrill Lynch for $525 million, using the rights to such characters as Ant-Man and the Avengers as collateral. Feige's boss, Aviera, was on board as well, believing movies was the future of Marvel Comics, but disagreed with Maisel over which movies to make. Ultimately, this disagreement led to A.V.A. Rod resigning in May of 2006 with a severance package of around $50 million, so don't feel too bad for him, along with being about what Mike Perlman had promised him years ago. Kevin Feige would promote the president of Marvel Studios in March of 2007. Under his leadership, Iron Man would be the first movie produced by Marvel Studios, released on May 2, 2008, and would ultimately gross $585.8 million worldwide. With that success, Kevin Feige and Marvel Studios announced a new slate of films, including Thor, Captain America, and The Avengers. The success of The Avengers in 2012, which grossed $1.5 billion, caught the attention of all of Hollywood, with many studios now trying to create their own shared movie universes. That success also got the attention of one more buyer interested in only Marvel, though it was originally for their cartoons over their movies. Thanks to A.V.A. Rod's striking better licensing deals for Marvel properties, they were now making millions. However, the companies that paid for the license were not pleased, naturally, as what was once a cheap but popular property was now an expensive but popular one. One company in particular was Walt Disney Company, which was paying millions for the rights to produce cartoons like Wolverine and the X-Men for their Disney XD channel in early 2009, one of the more popular series. They hated paying the fees, but the show was so popular, they had, they, they had virtually no choice. Finally, one Disney exec asked out loud, 
why don't we just buy Marvel? And that got the ball rolling for doing just that. In many ways, it was a perfect fit for both companies. Disney would acquire intellectual property that would appeal to young boys and men, something they have tried to do for years on their own without success, despite movies like Tron or The Rocketeer. And Marvel would become part of a larger corporation that would shield them from future financial difficulties. Similar to how DC is protected by being part of Warner Brothers, and thus weathered the 1990s comic book crash just fine. The merger went through smoothly, and on December 31st, 2009, Disney acquired Marvel Entertainment for $4 billion. Not bad for a company once in danger of being dissolved two decades prior. Ike Permiller would personally receive $800 million in cash and $590 million in Disney stock, though he would turn down a position on the Disney board of directors. In September of 2015, Permanent was stopped overseeing Marvel Studios, with Kevin Feige now reportedly directly to the head of the chairman of Walt Disney Studios. To date, the merger has been a fruitful one for both, with Marvel Comics benefiting from numerous licensings that Disney has acquired since the Star Wars and Alien, while Disney has produced the Marvel Cinematic Universe films, becoming the most successful film franchise in history at $22.5 billion and counting, proving ABA Rod's prediction right. As for the two financial giants who lost uh, Marvel Studios, last check Ron Perlman is worth $4.2 billion, while Carl Arkin has seen his wealth grow to $16.7 billion, making him the 26th richest man in the world. A.V.A. Rod, the former partner of Ike Perlman and head of Marvel Studios, has since started his own production company, producing films like the 2017 Ghost in the Shell. And that was a rambling and due brief history on the Marvel bankruptcy of 1990s. While this is more about finances, bonds, and stock options, it represents an important moment in the Marvel and comic book history, as if things had gone another way during the court proceedings, Marvel and comics and entertainment might not be the same. It has been said that failure is the greatest teacher, and Marvel's failure when it was going into Chapter 11 was the greatest lesson of all, as it forced the company to change direction and find new leadership, ultimately going into movies and TV to brilliant success. That wasn't happening in Ron Perlman, who openly disdained going into such mediums. It probably wouldn't have happened in Carl Icahn, whose reputation destroying companies over rebuilding would have been dire for Marvel. Luckily, Ike Permuto and A.V.A. Wright prevailed in beating both those financial giants and acquiring Marvel, as it was through them that Marvel went into its exciting new age. So, all us fans can be thankful for that. I would like to thank the Chief Source Feeds episodes, Comic Wars by Dave Revive, a deep dive into the financial side of what happened during the Marvel bankruptcy that while may leave uh, those not familiar with stocks and bonds dealings, does a fairly uh, good job overall. Great read for those interested. gotta talk yeah thunder talk we're going all kinds of sideways with that sweet nerd junk woke nerd junk it's topical political dare i say radical we've got all your latest news and reviews hot music and a whole lot of comedy but it ain't for kids definitely mature content so let's talk let's talk thunder talk thunder talk is a proud member of the eso network now is July 15th, 2021. Time for the favorite comic book of the week. 
Mouse Guard, the Owl and the Caregiver and Other Tales by David Peterson, which is a new entry in the uh, now classic Mouse Guard series that finds a different set of tales all woven into the Mouse Guard universe, from a uh, mouse that helps care for an injured owl to a thinly veiled adaptation of the classic Peter and the Wolf tale. This is a great uh, introduction for uh, those who have never read Mouse Guard before. I highly recommend it. It's one of the best and most unique comic books in the stands right now. That uh, well, basically, it's about uh, these uh, warrior mice that takes place seemingly the real world, but since it's from the perspective of mouse, like things like snakes and owls and wolves are like giant monsters, and they have to fight them. And it's really extremely well done, very cool. It's surprisingly mature. And well done tales, and these tales in themselves have a great uh, feel and atmosphere to them, and they they almost feel like a grim fairy tale with like a little bit of dark twist to it, and also a nice moral at the end. And of course, it's matched by Peterson's art, which is gorgeous and nicely detailed. And like I said, since it takes place from the perspective of a mouse, you get you see these what you what we as humans see as small creatures or average size creatures, but they're like giant monsters. Them, it's really cool and well done. Like yeah, if you haven't checked out Mouse Guard, definitely pick up this book or any of the Mouse Guard books. They're like I said, one of the most best made and unique comic books in the stands. Down to that weird square format, which makes them hard to bag and board, but still very worth picking up. So yes, Mouse Guard, uh, the Owlwing Caregiver and Other Tales. That's my favorite comic book of the week. And with that, we have concluded this uh, rambling and too brief history of the Battle of Marvel Comics back in the 1990s. Join me again next week. We'll be introducing another biography of a classic comic book artist. And until then, go out and enjoy yourself. Good comic book.